With the 13th pick in the 2014 NBA Draft, the Minnesota Timberwolves select Zach Levine from UCLA. NBA All-Star Zach Levine is not Jewish. But I remember when he was picked 13th in the 2014 NBA Draft by the Minnesota Timberwolves. I had the draft on in the background. I heard NBA Commissioner Adam Silver say the words, Zach Levine. And my ears perked up, as if they were trained by the obsessions of multiple generations of my people. Because I already knew that Zach Levine wasn't Jewish. But hearing his very Jewish-sounding name in that moment automatically popped the idea into my head. If most Jews are inclined to play Jewish geography, the pervasive cultural game of identifying and connecting with all other Jews, then there is perhaps no greater version of Jewish geography, at least for the purposes of our conversation, than is that athlete Jewish? In the 1990s, when the internet was becoming a thing, there was a Yahoo search engine parody website called Jewhoo.com where anyone could look up celebrities' status as Jews, broken out by category, just like the real Yahoo site. I remember us, as a family, having our desktop computer in one room and the TV where we watched sports in another. And my dad would watch any number of sporting events and wonder out loud about whether an athlete with a Jewish-sounding name was actually Jewish. Every time he asked the question, is athlete X Jewish? He'd quickly follow it up with, look it up on juhu.com, dispatching one of his two children to said desktop in the other room to find confirmation, as if that were a totally normal thing to do. Yet for so many American Jews, it is a totally normal thing to do. The more I talked to people for this series, the more I learned that their Jewish families, in this regard, were exactly like mine. Which leaves us with one big little question. Why? Why do Jewish Americans constantly want famous athletes to be Jewish? What are we chasing? Is this just a fun, quirky thing that so many of us do? To try to claim athletes as ours? Or is there something bigger at play here? I'm Meredith Shiner, and this is The Franchise, Jews, Sports, and America. In this episode, we're going to talk about identity and how sports have acted like a cipher to crack the code of what it means to be Jewish, and especially what it means to be Jewish in America. I have to note up front that this is a particularly challenging topic to tackle. Jewish American identity is not a monolith. There are an infinite number of ways to tell this story, and only one me, and one short episode. Today, we're going to consider the case of Major League Baseball's Ryan Braun, the 2007 National League Rookie of the Year and 2011 Most Valuable Player. Braun was an all-star who didn't really identify as Jewish until he did, and a player American Jews were desperate to claim as Jewish until they weren't. We'll talk to Dan Grunfeld, the son of Ernie Grunfeld, 
the only player in NBA history to be born to Holocaust survivor parents, about how basketball shaped their family story. And we'll discuss a topic that I feel is so important to my own Jewish identity, justice, and how that fits into the overall conversation on Jews and sports. In our previous episodes, we've explored sports as a tool for American Jews to assimilate into their broader communities, to establish and pass down family traditions, and even how sports can be a love language for us. But what if sports is quite literally a way we can tell the rich story of identity, one that is celebratory, challenging, and complex? Since the 1960s, as Jews have assimilated, we've become more diverse, and we've evolved in our views on what it means to be Jewish in America. This has impacted everything, even our obsession with sports. I'm glad that we're speaking about this in the context of Jews and sports, because part of it, not all of it, but part of it is about how do you make yourself legible? How do you make this identity legible to Americans and to the rest of the country? And this is one of the tensions that I think runs through American Jewish history. Do you privilege security and fitting in, or do you privilege distinctiveness? And what do each of those look like? That's Emily Tampkin. She's a journalist and author of the recent book, Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. I wanted to start here, with this idea of legible identity, or how easy we are to read or understand as Jews. Because it's the bridge from Sandy Koufax in 1965, making his Judaism undeniably legible by setting out a World Series game on Yom Kippur, to modern-day Jewish athletes. In that first episode, I talked about Sandy's demonstrative Judaism. Hearing Emily frame this as legible identity helped me to connect so many pieces of this show. Remember Max Fried, the Braves pitcher we discussed in episode one who fasted on Yom Kippur during the 2019 playoffs, but never told anyone until Atlanta sports writer Jeff Schultz helped us report it for this show? Part of me felt uncomfortable airing something about his Judaism he himself did not feel the need to proactively share. And it got me thinking so much about the evolution of legibility and the American Jewish identity. How do we see ourselves? How do we want others to see us? What does it look like for athletes to be legibly Jewish today against the backdrop of what it meant to be legibly Jewish in the 20th century? Are Jewish Americans in 2022, on the whole, more legible to non-Jewish Americans if prominent Jews make themselves more legible? Do we even want that? Here's Emily again, explaining how a 1934 poem published in the Detroit Free Press about a famous Jewish baseball player became a surprise inspiration in her book on American Jewish identity. There's a poem that I quote in the book that's about Hank Greenberg, And basically, the poem starts out with these Irish Americans being horrified because they think that he doesn't have an Irish last name. And through his sheer skill at baseball, he wins them over and then ends up sitting out on Yom Kippur to be with his people and to atone and to pray. And they say, we'll miss him at the bat, but he's true to his religion and we honor him for that. I did a reading. The poem was in the section that I read and I had to skip the poem because I just found myself like, I, I can't get through it and not get choked up. And why is that? Right? Like, why does that poem elicit this in me? Probably because I'm an American Jew. And and my interpretation of this identity sees that as being a a recognizable and remarkable thing, like winning people over through sheer 
skill and finding your way into the group through that while at the same time holding on to this other part of yourself. Sports has been one avenue through which American Jews have done that. But it's not that American Jews are not victims or villains. They're both victims and villains. And so American Jewish involvement in sports, in athletics, in the sports industry has not always been like heroic achievement, right? It's also, you know, there are Jewish sports owners who behave badly. There are Jewish athletes who behave badly. And that's also a part of the history that I think, not that we shouldn't be ashamed of it, but that we shouldn't hide away from. In other words, because of sports' prominent place in American culture, it can be a highly visible representation of the best and worst of us as a traditionally marginalized community. This segues perfectly into our conversation on the complicated case of former Milwaukee brewer Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun played in the major leagues for 13 years, from 2007 to 2020. He was born to a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. He was not raised Jewish, but as Braun ascended in baseball, Jewish fans became obsessed with him and this idea that he would be the next Jewish baseball icon. In a 2010 interview with USA Today, Braun said that while he was proud of his Jewish heritage, he, quote, did not want to make it into something more than it is. Telling the reporter he did not celebrate Jewish holidays growing up did not attend synagogue, and was not bar mitzvah. It was like in Jewish baseball fans' unending quest for the next Sandy Koufax. We wanted Ryan Braun to be Jewish. More than Ryan Braun actually saw himself as Jewish. The hype machine was turned on, and it seemed like nothing could stop it. The 2011 National League MVP is a member of the tribe? Sign us up. In the few short years between Braun's rookie season and his MVP year, Jews aggressively claimed Braun as our own. But then, it got complicated. For Braun and for Jews. It turned out that Braun had been cheating and that he lied about it. He had been using performance-enhancing drugs, including, he would admit years later, during his incredible 2011 MVP season. I talked to baseball reporter Sydney Bergman about a 2021 essay she wrote on the unceremonious end to Ryan Braun's career. The piece was titled, When Jews Cheat, The Tricky Legacy of Baseball's Ryan Braun. The sort of impetus behind me writing it was he was, for a long time, kind of the guy for the Brewers his time with Brewers had come to a a fairly unspectacular end. It wasn't done with much ceremony or much fanfare. At the time Sydney published her piece in April 2021, Braun was an unsigned free agent. By September, the Brewers, the only team he ever played for, posted a video to social media announcing his retirement. He was never the same star player after the 2013 suspension, and all the drama that surrounded it. And I think it's because of this sort of, I I call it an asterisk, and I'm pretty comfortable with that, you know, on a lot of his accomplishments, particularly early in his career. He is somebody who, you know, sort of had a very hot start to his career, all-star for a number of seasons, you know, MVP, stuff like that. And 
got derailed to a certain extent by first an allegation of cheating that he countered by saying that the person who was collecting the urine samples broke the chain of custody. When Braun was caught using performance-enhancing drugs the first time, he contested it on a technicality. Major League Baseball sided with him. But that wasn't the only accusation Braun made. Also that the tester was anti-Semitic. So Ryan Braun claimed that his urine sample collector was an anti-Semitic Cubs fan. But at the time Braun was contesting the positive test, when he knew he was using PEDs, he rallied other players around the league to his defense, claiming his innocence and leaning on the story of the anti-Semitic drug test administrator. But by the time he was caught cheating again, in 2013, and ultimately owned up to his drug use, prominent players felt like Braun was the cheater who cried wolf. In a highly unusual move, MLB players broke with the brotherhood and started openly abandoning Braun. Here's what ace pitcher Max Scherzer, then with the Tigers, said about Braun at the time. With the Braun case, I think it's absolutely despicable how he handled it. I'm glad he got caught. He went out of his way to try to bring people down and cover up his lies. And now he looks like Lance Armstrong. There's so much player outrage towards him because of how brash he was against Major League Baseball and how brash he was in his defense. Scherzer went so far as to say that Major League Baseball should void Braun's $113 million contract. But the entire Braun scandal didn't just cause his own peers to want to abandon him. It also made American Jews, who had been so desperate to claim him as one of us, question our actions. Here's Sydney again, explaining why she wanted to write an essay about Braun's career, specifically from a Jewish perspective. One of the, the impetuses for writing is this tension between sort of individual action and MLB as an institution having sort of a wink-wink, nod-nod, elbow-elbow approach to PEDs for a long time. You know, there is a certain point where there is individual responsibility not to cheat in a culture that endorses and rewards cheating through award, through monetary incentive, and then sort of does a, I didn't know any of you were cheating. You know, it becomes a little bit more fraught. And so I wanted to kind of just think about that tension between what I, I love about Judaism is having this collective sense of responsibility for one another, that if Brian Braun does something that makes you want to put your head in your hands, you know, you don't say, oh, he's not Jewish, he's a fake Jew. Whatever you say, oh, that's Shonda, right? He's making us look bad in front of, in front of the Goyim. And so I think that there is really that tension there that I found really interesting. There are so many layers to this Ryan Braun story that go beyond the basic questions of baseball or even cheating, or even how he leaned on his Judaism when caught doing bad things in a way that made us feel uncomfortable. Like that gnawing feeling we discussed in the Shonda's episode. One of the reasons I wanted to include Braun's story in our conversation is because it's an important example of what happens when we try to project Jewish identity onto someone for them and all the ways that can backfire. 
It's the polar opposite of the Tamir Goodman story. With Tamir, we saw serious devotion to Judaism and projected our dreams onto talent we tried to build up. With Ryan Braun, we saw serious talent and projected our dreams onto a Jewish identity we tried to build for him. In 2013, a Jewish children's publisher pulled Ryan Braun's image from a cover of the second edition of the 2006 book, Jewish Sports Stars, Athletic Heroes Past and Present. The act of pulling him from the cover generated multiple headlines. But to me, the bigger deal is the fact that he was put on the cover of a Jewish sports stars book in the first place. Ryan Braun had told a national news reporter he did not want his Jewish heritage to be made into a bigger deal than it is. And for many years, he had not even identified as Jewish. I'm not sure we, as Jews, ever had any introspection on our end about whether that was an acceptable thing for us to do. And I frankly would feel this way whether or not Braun cheated. But it certainly feels worse for all of us that he used his Judaism as an illegitimate defense of his cheating. This is not to diminish the impact of anti-Semitism or to say that Jewish players of Braun's era did not face it. All-star Sean Green played in the majors from 1993 to 2007 for the Blue Jays, Dodgers, Diamondbacks, and Mets. In a June 2022 interview with the Los Angeles Times, he talked about the anti-Semitism he faced from fans and even his own teammates. Here's what he said. One time a guy looked at me and gave me the Heil Hitler salute. That was pretty disturbing. I just get more upset that some people kind of have that much anger that they feel like they need to get it out. It just didn't make any sense to me. So yeah, not many times, but there are certain ones that strike a nerve. And that one definitely did. So it's no secret that baseball is not the most progressive or pluralistic of sports. And honestly, that's such a dense and complicated conversation, I could dedicate an entire second series to it. Instead, I want to share part of the conversation I had with Jake Mitz, who you've heard in a few different episodes. I asked him for his thoughts on how Jewish baseball fans engage with Ryan Braun. He gave a unique perspective, not as Jake, current baseball journalist, but as Jake, former high school and college baseball player who spent years as the only Jewish kid in the dugout. The experience he describes, facing anti-Semitism as a young athlete, made me consider how any number of athletes who identify as Jewish or have Jewish heritage or even Jewish-sounding names would respond to and grow with sports culture. I think it's also important to note that Jake is 27. So the experiences he's describing are not old. They're current. There are like a lot of players who sort of are, or if they identify, they're like a little bit quieter about it. There aren't a lot of like very demonstrably Jewish baseball players. For me, growing up playing high school baseball on a obviously an all Jewish team in high school, and then playing travel ball, where I was often the only Jewish kid on the team because I played for like a, an inner city team called uh, DC Dynasty. I never felt more Jewish than when I was away from the Jews. Like that's when my identity was kind of most important to me. It was when I was on the team explaining what Judaism was to people who weren't. 
I have a very distinctive memory of a kid putting a shrimp puff in my Sprite uh, when we were on the road eating somewhere, saying that if I drank it, I would go to Jew hell, you know? And like, those are the moments that like stick out and it's, you know, it's just 11 year olds being idiots, but I know that kid's dad, like it's coming from the dad, right? And, but it, those were the moments for me where I, I, it resonated the deepest. When you talk about just like searching for, to maintain a sense of otherness, right? Like being in a, in a community, in a space where you are, you don't have to search for it. It's just kind of there, right? There was a book I read growing up, Matzah Ball, a Passover story about a kid who brought his Passover food to the baseball game, to the Orioles game specifically. This book is fundamental to me. It's about a kid who like wants to go to the baseball game and like has to bring his like macaroons in, in his pockets. Aaron is embarrassed until his friend go out for snacks and something wonderful happens. I think he like catches a foul ball and like magically turns into a matzo ball. This is such a fundamental book for me. In college, I would be eating matzo in the dugout during games, during Passover, and like passing it out to all the goys. You know, we would have rally matzo. To me, like, <laughs> it, that was such like a tangible thing because it is a restriction, right? It is here's the thing that you cannot do that is going to restrict your life in some way and increase the level of meaning that you have and connection you have with, with your Jewishness. And even as I grew up and stopped keeping kosher, I've still kept... KFP. By the way, for the listeners, KFP, kosher for Passover. Kosher Passover. Yeah. And when I was in college, I kept KFP pretty strictly and was, you know, on the road with the baseball team. We like went to Wendy's on some road trip, right? And like there was nothing to eat. So I got like a Baconator, which is the least kosher thing of all time. But for my own, you know, Jewishness, I took off the bread and put it in between two slices of matzah. Because that for me made me feel good. Made me feel like <laughs> I was doing what I needed to do, right? And I understand the absurdity of that. I really, I really genuinely do. But at the time, like being on the road, I, I wanted to create that sense of otherness when I was with the team, right? It's yeah. like, oh, what is Mince doing? Oh, Mince is eating like a matzo baconator? Well, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be the Jewish guy. That, that was important. The thing I love about the baconator story, of all things, is that it's emblematic of this entire conversation. It reinforces the idea that how we are Jewish is how we decide to be Jewish, to whatever degree, for ourselves and in front of others. If we give ourselves that privilege, we should also grant it to athletes who pursue their identity however they see fit. I'm not saying that Jewish sports fans should cease playing Jewish geography entirely, but to consider whether we should actually take more care in doing it. With apologies to the creators of Jewhu.com. I'm not sure there's a better way to continue our conversation about how identity is central to the themes of sports and Judaism than to talk to the author of a book that tells his Jewish family's history from World War II to present day through the story of basketball. Dan Grunfeld is a former professional basketball player who played at Stanford University and then for eight years in multiple leagues overseas, including in Israel. He's also the son of NBA legend Ernie Grunfeld, a former NBA player, broadcast personality, and longtime NBA executive. Dan wrote the book, By the Grace of the Game, 
the Holocaust, a basketball legacy, and an unprecedented American dream, documenting his dad Ernie's journey from a Romanian-born child of Holocaust survivors to a key figure in the most elite circles in professional sports. The book cites Ernie Grunfeld's life story as the only known journey from Auschwitz to the NBA. Ernie Grunfeld immigrated to the United States at age eight in 1964, speaking no English. By 1976, he won an Olympic gold medal, representing Team USA in basketball. Dan talks candidly about his own internal tension and commitment to fully understanding and appreciating his own story in the context of his family's legacy. When we think about Jewish identity, and especially American Jewish identity, how our place in society was shaped by World War II and the Holocaust is an incredibly important factor in how we continue to think about ourselves and our security in this country. For Dan, it's also deeply personal. His grandparents are survivors. His dad came to this country with nothing. And Dan, as he readily admits, was born with everything, all because of basketball. Here's Dan discussing how his identity is bundled with this unique and uniquely American inheritance. It's a core theme of the book is inheritance. Like you mentioned, right? My grandmother's cooking, the values that were passed down from her father who was killed in Auschwitz. And then the, the big history with basketball, you know, knowing what the game did for my dad, how it kind of changed our family's history, but also kind of gave us hope in, in America and then that kind of that obligation, right? Not only that I inherited my dad's kind of history as this great player, but also the only NBA player whose parents survived the Holocaust. You know, so carrying that history with me as well. And also inheriting names, you know, is, is a theme of my book. And, you know, that I'm named after my uncle who passed away tragically, as you know, from reading my book. And my son is named after my great grandfather, you know, who, who was lost in the Holocaust. And so you inherit those names you inherit those people's memories. It, it, I always felt an obligation to live up to certain things. And I knew that my uncle didn't get a chance to live out his dreams. You know, So in my book, in my family story, inheritance is just such a big part of it. How do you really feel about like basketball being interwoven into all of these stories? Yeah, I mean, the magnitude of the game in our lives is just huge because of what it did. Yeah, listen, I mean, it's it's such a core part of who we are. I mean, you talk about inheriting, okay, big values and emotional things, but also maybe some smaller things. Like for me, like I inherited not only a great love of the game, a great appreciation and dedication to it, but also New York City basketball culture. You know, because mm -hmm. my dad, when he, he learned basketball on the playgrounds in New York City, that's where he kind of came up. I was born in the tri-state area myself. And so that's something that I inherited, that history, knowing about the game, knowing about New York City and uh, yeah, listen, the, the game has been the ultimate vehicle for my family. And to this day, my dad and I talk about it every day. We watch it. We laugh about it. The way Dan writes about his story and talks about his story showcases every use case of sports we've covered in this series. Sports as a vehicle for assimilation and exceptionalism. Sports as connection. And perhaps, in our most literal example yet, sports as a love language. Basketball was how Dan's dad, Ernie, talked to his classmates when he did not know enough English to use words. And basketball was also how Dan and Ernie talked to each other. Yeah, so you talk about assimilation and exceptionalism. Like, 
first and foremost for my dad, it was assimilation, right? Because he came to the United States, spoke fluent Hungarian, Romanian, Italian, didn't speak a word of English, had never touched a basketball, loses his brother. Parents are Holocaust survivors. You know, they have to work six, seven days a week to make a living. It's a hard background, you know? So for him, he went to the park in Queens, New York to make friends, to learn English, to heal from his brother's loss, but just to belong to something. You know, and it was basketball that did that for him. Basketball is a universal language and sports is that way. And I know that, right? Because I played professionally in Europe and I had teammates who we, we didn't speak the same language, but we were good friends. We played well together because bat, the ball was our translator, you know, and, it, and it's the greatest one. And so my dad's story is, is one of the ultimate examples of sports being this tool for assimilation. And it just happened to click for him, you know, and he, he was just very good. And I don't think he would have flown so far so fast had he not been moving away from such difficult things, you know, because he became this phenom. It wasn't just that he was good. He was he was just a legend and he remains that to this day. The truth about love languages and inheritance, though, is that we don't just receive them. If we're lucky and we so choose, we also get to pass them down. When Dan started researching his book in 2016, he was not yet a parent. But the purpose of his book evolved by the time it was published in 2021. Dan now has kids of his own. His book went from a way to honor his dad and his survivor grandmother to a way for his own children to understand who they are. I want them to know where they come from, you know, and and what people went through so they could have the lives they do. My grandparents, my dad, they went through so much, they overcame so much so I could have a better life. You know, and I just think it's really important to know your roots, know where you come from, know the history of the Jewish people, you know, because I'm very proud to be Jewish. It's a core part of who I am. But, you know, we have to know this history. So the Holocaust of of the persecution over time. And so they're going to know those things. They're going to know what the game did for our family. But you can extrapolate that to what's possible, what things can do for people. You know, it's bigger. This was our version of this story, right? Basketball was this just beautiful, beautiful gift for us. But it's hopeful, you know, that for, for a kid to come to America and be made fun of and not speak the language and lose his brother, but then to become a star. I mean, a real star because of the game of basketball. And, you know, he's touched people's lives because of that. Again, I can't tell you if people reach out to me saying my dad is a hero to them. He gave them hope. Here's a Jew wearing number 18 for the New York Knicks, you know? They, I, I can't tell you how much, much I've heard that. And so very rewarding for me to, to know that, that my kids will know that history, not only the Jewish people, of their grandfather, of, you know, of basketball in our lives. As we sort through Jewish American identity, I love that the story of the Grunfelds gives us an opportunity to view identity through the lens of perseverance and pride the building blocks of sports, and also of the Jewish people. In the dozens of interviews I conducted for this show, with star journalists, athletes, superfans, even a rabbi, I had one question I wanted to ask nearly all of them. Are sports just? To me, this is the perfect Jewish question because it leaves open to interpretation what I even mean. 
Am I asking about sports and justice on the macro level? About civil rights or equal pay for women athletes? Or pay for college athletes at all? Or am I asking in the micro sense? Like, is the outcome of any individual game fair? Should the better team, by virtue of being better, always win? How does one even define better here? Is it just about stat lines? Or about the quality of people in the organization? In truth, I asked Are Sports Just? Not only because it's the perfect Jewish question, but also because if you asked me before this show to name what I felt formed my own Jewish identity, I probably would have said my sense of commitment to justice. This commitment is the thing that drives most of my life outside of this show, while also being one of the key contributing factors to my skepticism and cynicism about the American sports industrial complex. What this has meant practically is that these three words help give an answer to why this series you've been listening to is not just eight profiles of Jewish athletes, but instead a collection of stories woven together to try to answer bigger questions about Jewish identity. Frankly, I wish the answer to the question of are sports just could be as neat as the powerful visual of the statue of Sandy Koufax in Dodger Stadium. Unveiled this past summer, sitting alongside Jackie Robinson. Two icons, a Jew who sat out the World Series to observe Yom Kippur, and a Black American who defied history and hate to break Major League Baseball's color line, connected forever by Dodger Blue. But it's not that simple. Here's Dave Zirin, author and sports editor of The Nation. I mentioned this when I quoted him in our owners episode, but I consider him to be one of the country's foremost experts on the intersections of sports and justice. The starting point, are sports just, is understanding that there are multiple traditions and politics that run through sports. So sometimes sports can feel incredibly just. I mean, it can feel just both in terms of the history that it proclaims writ large and the results that it produces. Like when Jackie Robinson uh, integrates Major League Baseball, I mean, that, that was a moment of profound justice in 1947. But then the fact that he was the first rookie of the year and then the MVP the next season, I mean, that's sports almost playing to a script where you almost feel like the end result is going to be justice. But then if you fast forward, of course, uh, Jackie Robinson dies in uh, 1972 at the age of 53, way before he should have died, uh, very embittered about the role of Black people in baseball and at the role of racism in U.S. society, which is decidedly unjust. So I think it's it's something that we have to constantly be um, disentangling. Constantly disentangling the just from the unjust? feels like a very Jewish process to me. Dave goes on to articulate the complicated energy I feel about sports and how that energy informs this conversation on Jews and sports. Should we consider Jews and sports or even Jews in America through an explicitly political lens? Or should we evaluate these questions on the basis of representation and symbolism? And if we do both, How do we reconcile the pros and cons of each approach? It's all about, are we talking about sports as an explicitly political medium or a representative political medium? And 
by that I mean it's like th- there is politics that is writ large through sports, like whether or not there is public funding of stadiums or not, or whether or not an abuser of women gets contract after contract, or gee, the biggest contract in NFL history. Uh, you know that that's decidedly unjust, and that's rooted in the business of sports. Um, there are parts of the business of sports that. Um, can be more just, like when people fight for a more fair shake, whether through unionization or whether it's the Olympics or World Cup are coming to your community and people push back. See, that that's explicit politics through sports. That's about social policy, where sports just happens to be the medium by which we discuss it. But then there's like this idea of the play of sports. And what does the play tell us about justice? And can we look at things that happen in sports? Like, those occasional moments when the good guys or women or what have you win and how that makes us feel or when they're able to succeed despite obstacles in their way or when a trailblazer is able to achieve and earn the respect of their teammates and earn the respect of fans and really change consciousness in the process. I always think that's an important way to look at when we talk about the politics of sports is really separating the representative from the explicit. Because everything in the show ties back to Sandy, it's hard not to think about how Sandy Koufax was the perfect blend of explicit and representative politics for Jews in America in 1965. Because at that time, being representative was being explicitly political. Last summer, when prominent sports broadcaster Charlie Steiner gave remarks at the unveiling of Sandy's statue at Dodger Stadium, He used very specific, powerful words to describe Sandy's decision to sit out a World Series game on Yom Kippur. Then came the memorable World Series against the Twins. In an act of conscience, principle, and even peaceful disobedience, the Dodger ace would not pitch in the first game as it was on Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. Act of conscience, principle, and even peaceful disobedience. Those words are significant because they are taken straight from the lexicon of justice. As I meditated on them, I wondered why Jews had not found a second Sandy, even though we've spent decades clearly striving for one. See the conversation we just had on Ryan Braun. Sure, a Jewish athlete who is the perfect blend of explicit and representative politics while also being one of the greatest to ever play their respective sport, feels like a tall order. But here's a provocative question. What if we just spent the past 20 years of our lives with the second Sandy and were too blind to it because of the same off-field injustices that athlete has committed to fighting against? Remember Howard Megdahl from our Mets episode? What we didn't talk about then was what happened after Howard stopped covering baseball full-time. Four years ago, Howard pivoted his journalism career to focus on women's sports, launching two newsrooms, including The Next, the first ever website dedicated exclusively to covering women's basketball 24-7, 365. I wanted to ask him about justice in sports. Given his vantage point as one of the too few reporters committed to covering women's athletics with the same intensity as men's, I initially asked Howard a question about explicit politics and the 2020 election. But in the course of our conversation, 
I realized we had touched on something much bigger. We had uncovered an heir apparent to Sandy Koufax. And her name is Sue Bird. Sue Bird is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. A four-time WNBA champion. A 13-time WNBA All-Star. The top 10 of all time in every WNBA statistic. A two-time NCAA champion. A Naismith College Player of the Year. A five-time Olympic gold medalist. Name an award for playing the game at any level, and she's won it. She's also Jewish, from Long Island, has Israeli citizenship, and is one of the most outspoken athlete activists of a generation. In 2020, Sue Bird was a leader in a campaign by WNBA players that helped defeat a sitting United States senator from Georgia. Then-Senator Kelly Leffler was a co-owner of the WNBA's Atlanta Dream. And the players on the WNBA's Atlanta Dream? They decided they no longer wanted to be owned by Kelly Leffler, in part because of Leffler's opposition to the Black Lives Matter movement. And then the rest of the league decided they no longer wanted Leffler as a senator. The Seattle Times reported that Byrd was one of the key architects behind the WNBA's first political endorsement for Leffler's opponent, Reverend Raphael Warnock. Warnock and the WNBA won, literally flipping control of the entire United States Senate. For many, especially for women, some of the most iconic images of that entire political cycle were of Sue Bird and WNBA players around the league wearing plain black t-shirts printed with the words, Vote Warnock. Leffler lost her race, and she also lost the dream. A former dream player, Renee Montgomery, a 34-year-old Black woman, was part of the group that purchased the team from her. I asked Howard Megdahl about the image of Sue in that shirt and what it meant. That it was not just a WNBA player fighting this battle, but a Jewish woman from Syosset was very meaningful. And, you know, Sue Bird encompasses a lot of what we think about when we think about groups that are currently under attack. And so for her to speak out for us mattered in that moment in the way that I know, because I've spoken to them, for so many Jews, it mattered that Hank Greenberg spoke out on behalf of Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson made his debut in 1947 in the major leagues. And so again, it goes back to what I think we talked about quite a bit here, which is that if we think of Jews in America as a group that needs to speak out more on our own behalf and needs true intersectionality among the progressives in this country to be speaking out on our behalf in the way we need to speak out on behalf of other marginalized groups, it's fundamental to see somebody like Sue Bird represent us in that moment. And so it was a very big deal. It was a very big deal to me. And it was a very big deal to many people I know. I had never had this thought until this moment right here. But if not for the systemic divestment in the women's game, 
from ESPN, from the WNBA, even from the NCAA. Would Sue have been Sandy? It's very possible. There's no reason to think she wouldn't have been. There are no shortage of figures in women's basketball who over the past 25 years, it's easy to say, were, were they in the men's game? clearly would have been among the most famous people of all time. And, and that Subert has broken through as much as she has, independent of the type of comparable investment that we see to men's sports uh, is a tribute to her. But yes, it also represents, I mean, is women's basketball now what baseball was in the 1960s, perhaps, when we think about where Jews were, when we think about the civil rights movement and people's place among the civil rights movement. I'm not totally convinced Sue will not ultimately be Sandy when we think back. I'm not convinced that 30 years from now, when there are other Jews and women's basketball who follow, those of us who lived through Sue Bird won't get angry in a car and storm out of it if anybody questions Sue Bird's place in history. I think that's very possible. I became obsessed with this theory of Sue as Sandy. And believe me, we tried to get her for this episode. And I still really want to talk to her about it. So if you're listening and know how to reach her, hit me up. We started this series by asserting that Sandy Koufax was the beginning. But the more I think about it, Sandy is also an ending. Sandy Koufax was perhaps the only ever representation of Jewish Americans that we all could agree was our best representation. When I look at Sue Bird, everything she's done on the court and off the court makes her an absolute contender to be considered as a modern-day Sandy. But of course, not everyone will agree with this assertion. For Sandy, the representation could be political without feeling overtly political. In 2022, I don't think that we're afforded such subtlety. And who is an idol representing? For me, maybe Sue Bird represents my highest ideals of what being a star Jewish athlete should be. The best. A fighter for what she believes is right. An inspiration for young women. Unafraid to wear a black t-shirt with a political slogan or nothing at all on the 2018 cover of ESPN's Body Issue, alongside her partner, soccer star Megan Rapino. I am not naive enough to pretend that there are not others, including Jews, who would look at all those same things and see them as a Shonda in some way. I remember when I started this show, one of my producers brought up a question sports columnist Jason Gay had asked on an episode of Unorthodox, which basically amounted to why are Jews still so obsessed with Sandy Koufax? The more I've thought about the answer to that question, the more I think it has less to do with Sandy himself and everything to do with how we've all processed and internalized what it means to be Jewish in America where there are a seemingly infinite number of ways to define ourselves as Jews. Sandy Koufax was the right person at the right time. Anyone after would necessarily be subject to more debate, a debate no one could win. <laughs> 
There are so many questions I had for this show and so many ideas for stories that will go untold by me about the intersections of Jewish identity and sports identity. I wanted to cover so much more, like Allie Raisman and her fight against systemic abuse and Red Auerbach and social justice, or even how that one line in the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler about Rod Carew is actually really problematic. But I'm only one woman and one podcast. As we've navigated this series though, I also got some answers I wasn't even searching for and learned of stories I did not even realize I was chasing. I talked to people who love sports more than I do. I talked to people who believe in God's connection to sports more than I do. I talked to people who are fundamentally, beautifully optimistic about the future of Jewish America, sports, and Jewish Americans in sports. I learned from them, and I hope you did too. In our next and final episode of the franchise, The Post Game Show, where we'll break down what we've learned in our time together. I'm Meredith Shiner, and I'll see you next time. The Franchise is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Meredith Shiner. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Our logo is by Kurt Hoffman. Special thanks to Tablet Magazine and the Tablet Studios team, including Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Jerome Ruskay, and the Meredith Shiner team of Josh and Carter Zembic. Please rate and review us wherever you can listen to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this series, tell a friend. You can write to us at franchise at tabletmag.com. And for more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash the franchise. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Hold up. 